<laughs> yeah, thank you for that. It's an interesting thing, this um, uprightness. <laughs> you know, because obviously it's not the point, is it? It's fine if you lie down for the Dharma talk on one level. But there's something about the structure of uh, being upright, if our body allows. And I know some of you are working with health issues that mean it's very important to lay down. But there's something about the uprightness, even if we're lying down, or the uprightness of sitting upright that can support the mind to be awake, can support the mind to be bright, can support the field to be bright. And the structure's not the point, is it? It's like the timetable out there on the notice board. That's not the point. The point of Guy House isn't to come here and do sitting and walking and sitting and walking and sitting and walking and sitting and walking. (laughs) Even though it looks like that's the point. That's the structure. That's not going to free us. Sitting upright isn't going to free us. But the structure can offer a support if we relate to it in a wholesome way knowing it's not the point, but it offers us something, it gives us structure within which a process can be illuminated and seen. And that's really the point of the structure. So we need to use skillful structures The other night I spoke about the scaffold and and that's a kind of structure, isn't it? It's like our ego structure, the scaffold that kind of props us up and helps us manage the inner, outer threshold. And the point of our practice isn't to blast through that or kind of cut it away or anything like that. This structure has served us. (coughs) We have needed it. It has done its best for us. Our practice is that it can be illuminated. And it can relax. And some of those patterns, the programmings that make up our structure... Some of them aren't easy, are they? Some of them aren't easy. And sometimes we come to practice and think, or I did anyhow, come to practice and think, oh, if it wasn't for all that, I didn't have the word structure in those days, but if it wasn't for all those programmings, all those things I keep taking as me and mine, and they're all in the way, and if they were just gone, things would be open and much easier. And then they can be either a subtle or a very gross aversion to the structure an unkindness to our structure, a wish to annihilate our structure as if it was in the way, and it's not. It's not in the way of our radiant heart. It never was, it never could be. It's the idea that it's who I am. It's the grasping. It's the taking hold of it as if it were the truth. So we use skillful structures in our life. And the Buddha, very interesting, I find very interesting, he describes liberation as chitta, the heart-mind, this, we've been looking at a lot, this sensitive, resonating, impressionable, responsive, that we are. Any of you recognize that? We're impressionable. We feel the impressions of what's around us, don't we? And what's within us. He says, freedom is chitta without supports. That the heart-mind is in the completely boundless awakening is no longer leaning on anything to know itself, is no longer leaning on anything to reference itself, to find out where it is and who it is. 
It's, it's given that up. It's given that up. Chitta without support, chitta without leaning on any ideas, without leaning on any feelings, any perceptions, any beautiful states, any terrible states. It's not stuck, it's not bonding itself to that any longer. The chitta is free, and what's it free for? It's free to... What would be the point of freedom? <laughs> What's it going to be free for? Or what is it free for in the moments when you're not gluing your identity to what's arising? It's free to unfold itself. It's free to reveal more truth. It's free to be itself. It's free from the grip It's free from believing I'm the structure. It doesn't mean we have to take it all away. Aversion and annihilation do not get us to liberation. It's free from the grip. It's free from the grip of taking anything that flows through the chitta as me, mine, and who, and what I am. The grip of the delusion, of taking the contents to be myself. Ah, you up for that? And so we use structure, absolutely. So what the Buddha said, freedom is chitta without supports. But he said, on the way to that, use skillful supports. It's not like do away with all supports. Supports are an illusion, No, use skillful supports because we all instinctively seek supports one way or another. Sometimes something to kind of lean on, something to orient around, something to go, yeah, I'm doing this today. I think it's very healthy, actually, and natural and normal. And the Buddha says, just check out the supports you're using and check that they're wholesome ones. Check that they're ones that will help you let go of supports in the end. So you find the supports. It's not not a a wrong thing. It's like, get, get some good ones. Get some good ones going. What are skillful supports? Before I do look at skillful supports, what are the supports that we, the untrained mind, my untrained mind, goes to for supporting the sense of myself, supporting my sense of being here? Where do I go when my mind isn't doing well or is not trained? I go, I, they're not even terrible things sometimes. Sometimes they might have been some tricky things for support, chemical support. Alcohol support. Yeah, the support of my loved ones. It's very natural. The support of the... (laughs) I don't know where this comes up. You know, as a teenager, the different ways I used to support myself of joining the B-52s fan club. Right? You know, it's like... This is the, these things, like we reference ourselves to, right? The, and in the normal kind of ways, in normal culture, yeah, the, the church you might go to, the synagogue you might go to, the temple you might go to, the club you join, the political affiliation, the, the pub you go to, the group, the subgroup you're in, the things you use for support, and they can be more or less skillful. They can have more or less wholesome characteristics. And in practice we come and we... Because we want to center around something, like bees to a honeypot. We want to find something good to center around. We need that. 
come to practice and we decided for this retreat to take on the support of the structure, the support of each other, the support of the timetable, the support of the building, the support of the beautiful grounds, the support of these particular teachings that have come now for a very long time, the support of our teachers and their teachers and back to the Buddha. Good, lean on these things. Lean on these things. We take on the mindfulness of breathing. This is a support. It's a skillful support. It's not the point. It's not the end of suffering. It's a skillful support. It's like running a skillful program through the system. Okay, I take on this support. The breathing, belly... Right, yeah, it kind of lines me up a little bit more. Lines me up a little bit more here. Okay, that's a useful support. That's a useful support. When I'm leaning on my thoughts for my support, it's anybody's guess where I might end up. <laughs> really. And I'm starting to know the kinds of places I might end up if I lean on that. If I lean on ideas about myself, self-images, whoo. They change like this, you know. And supports can tell us, all they can tell us is they help us know where we are. Right? They help me know where I am in relation to the structure. They can never tell you who you are and who the other one is. They can tell us where I am but they cannot tell us who I am and that's where the searching is, isn't it? We're looking to the structure. We're looking for something to tell, like I said the other night, to tell me who I am or who's my mother. In this case, who am I? As one of my teachers says, I love it when he says this. Every time he says it from his beautiful heart and gravelly depth, he says, anything your mind tells you about who you are is Mara. Mara, in the, if you don't know, in the tradition, is the personification of delusion. Any definition your mind comes up with about who you are is Mara. Phew! Yeah. <laughs> Thank God for that. But it means I can't take hold of being the great one. Sometimes the chitta feels great. The heart, mind, there's a perception. Things are going well. Have you ever had those days? <laughs> Sometimes it feels good to be alive, right? The perception, the quality of the chitta, this impressionable, resonant, sensitive field here feels good. Yes. That's a feeling running through. That's a perception, it's a kind of impression moving through. If I go, okay, good, now I know, I've arrived, I'm good, and I don't know that it's running through the consciousness, I pick it up and I lean on my mind for support, I go, yeah, doing well here, pretty good, going well. I wonder if they can see. You know, It's like I want to start to reinforce that sense of myself. Oh, give me that. But if I take hold of that, what gets illuminated in my practice, I take hold of the perception, yeah, pretty good. I am binding myself to its opposite. Because freedom isn't about feeling good in the end. I don't know if that's good news or bad news. Freedom isn't about pain or pleasure in the end. If I take hold of the perception of good, I make that myself, it will change. That perception will change. What runs through the heart-mind will change. A different day I'll wake up with a different mood. Somebody will say something different and then, oops, the chitta contracts, the heart-mind contracts. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good the amount I want to lean on my idea of I'm great, I'm good, I've got it, 
to make that something I lean upon. I am fixating, I'm doing the same kind of leaning to the, oh my God, I've lost it, I've blown it, I'm bad, I'm wrong, whatever, wherever your mind goes on that night and day cycle, right? On that night and day cycle. It's the binding. And we've probably heard it many times if we've been around these teachings. It's the binding. It's the need to center myself around something. Yes, that's instinctual, and we want to do skillful things with that urge to center. But if I try and center around my ideas, I am binding myself to them. And I, as my teacher says, as night follows day, you're binding yourself to constant, constant roller coaster. So if any of you have felt like it's the roller coaster here, that's a common thing that can happen on retreats. It's not wrong. We see it. We see the roller coaster. What is the roller coaster actually? It's something arises, it's like I'm on a what is a roller coaster? I don't, I don't think I've ever been on a roller coaster. I'm always too terrified of the roller coasters. Like, can't the like, what the ro- literal roller coaster sets off for me is this kind of my whole body and my chitta and the heart resonance is like utter terror normally. Right? Some, some of us like that resonance running through or the excitement in it. But the, the inner roller coaster, it's like I, something happens and we inadvertently, it's no error, it's, it's normal, this is what gets illuminated by no error, we, we become the thing that rises through us, let's say it's the, let's say it's the, can't stand it here, has anybody had that arise at all, can't stand it here, Pro, think program running through, right, I become it, I grip it, And it takes me on a ride. It takes me on a train. It's like I've hopped on that train and that train is going to dump me off somewhere else. Because it will change. It will change. And I land back down to earth. Oh, gosh, that didn't feel good. And then now I'm bored. And I go on the little train of boredom and then that dumps me. And then actually, wow, that was a really lovely dinner and the staff looked really beautiful today. And wow, those teachers, I hated them yesterday, but they looked so gorgeous today. And... Right? And then, ooh, up on that one, and then, boof, that one lands. And we go, God, this is terrible, this is exhausting, this is exhausting, this is exhausting. I'm so tired of this, this is samsara, this is samsara. I go for a ride on every train that passes through. It's exhausting. And it's not wrong, but it gets illuminated. And as it gets illuminated, uh, sometimes we feel a little despair, and then we go on the despair train, right? That runs through the chitta. But that too passes. Something else moves through. can also fire our determination of enough. Enough. I want to see something that is not. I want to know myself in a way that is not just being picked up and dumped by every wave that moves through. And that's this heart's desire for freedom. Freedom... to rest where we are. Freedom to listen, actually, to what, again, one of my teachers, actually, I think this might be from the Buddha, this piece, called the signless gates of liberation. Signless gates of liberation. Most of the time, we are looking for signs that, we, that are familiar to us. We look for signifiers, things that 
have a significance for us um, that, that automatically immediately have some kind of meaning or significance for us. And one of those signifies is feelings. Right? Emotions can be a powerful signifier. They, they feel like they're real. They feel real. They have um, color and texture and vibration and sometimes charge and all, all kinds of things. Other signifiers we look for are thoughts. We look for them, to them, for that landing place, that place I can finally get off the train. But they won't get us off the train. They won't deliver us. So these signless gates of liberation, also called the signless gates of deliverance, the thoughts can't deliver us to the peace that we seek. We can have some great thoughts. We can have some awful thoughts. We can have some really mundane thoughts. You probably all know that by now. They cannot deliver us. The feelings on there cannot deliver us. The perceptions, the impressions. These doorways to the deathless, to the liberation, to the deliverance may not look so significant, may not resonate as signifiers that are familiar. And we develop a taste for that they will be, have previously been off our radar. Because our radar, my radar, is the the radar is the things I've been looking at the whole time. Well, looking at would be good. The things I've believed are me the whole time. My feelings, my thoughts, what people say about me, what I say about me. They've been on my radar. Come to practice Ruth's beautiful image last night with the water, I start to see, okay, they're the mind objects. I start to see the things on the radar, the things I normally pick up in consciousness, my normal signifiers, start to see them. And as I settle back in the seeing of my normal kinds of feelings, thoughts, perceptions, views, opinions, images, who's right, who's wrong, all of that, something else is being cultivated as I develop the mindfulness of the things that normally tell me who I am, the radar, not because I'm doing it, because I can't do liberation, starts to widen. What I'm looking at, I'm a little bit less fixated. Yes, I still get caught. Yes, of course, that's fine. We work with that. We handle the things that normally show up on the radar. But the view starts to widen and things come in from that aren't on my normal radar. Have you had things arise this week that haven't been on your normal radar or the familiar radar? And it can be really small things. It can be you've never really looked at a rabbit's fur before. And there you are on the lawn and you're struck. Something goes in. The silkiness, it's a new perception arising in consciousness, a new kind of feeling, a new impression moves through consciousness. Or the green of the grass strikes you. Or the crispness of the bell. Sometimes the things that haven't been on my normal radar are things I've buried, things I've split off and tried to fragment that come forward once the mindfulness of breathing is established, the landing in my seat is established, my willingness to do this work of renunciation, which you're doing, where we're, we're letting go of the familiar here. Then it makes room for the pockets other pockets to come into the stream, 
to start to be seen, sometimes lovely things, sometimes difficult things. Maybe my aspiration gets clearer. Sometimes a moment of nobility or dignity. Sometimes that painful place I really thought I'd left behind when I was five. Right? Oop, yeah. Now there's enough support. Now there's enough good leaning for this to be able to be held, loved, brought back, and liberated. Things that weren't on my radar, these, we develop a taste, things can surprise us. And the way the Buddha speaks about these, uh, he talks about three gates of deliverance, he calls them signlessness, no signs, desirelessness, and emptiness. Signlessness, things that don't go, oi, over here, remember? You're the one who did that 25 years ago and you really shouldn't have. That might arise. I can feel the pain in the heart. Maybe the moment of sorrow. But I've seen that so many times now. I'm not surprised it arises. It can be included. It can be enfolded back into the chitta. It can be welcomed, included, and the identification loosens. It's okay. One of my teachers says um, one of these very core signs for him was the perception, is the perception of not feeling welcome. Right? That's one of the ones he has, which many of us have. Didn't quite feel welcome in the world. Didn't quite feel welcome growing up. Didn't all of that. So he knows the history, and that's good. That's helpful. And he's so beautiful. He says, and he's he's so uh, steady. There's a lot of support. He has good outer support and inner support. And. I think I told this story before, but he came to my house a couple of years ago and he, I opened the door and I was very pleased to see him. And I said, how are you? And he walked in, real solid, and he said, well, I'm just wondering if I'm welcome. <laughs> right? And he wasn't believing it. It wasn't that I had to suddenly go make him feel better in that moment. That wasn't the point. He was holding that thread, like a little thread on a very, very, very big canvas. He could see that. still rang. It still rang. Boing. You know, still that. You come someone new, you open the door, it's a new threshold. (laughs) Some of us would have a different one there. Right? Still rang. I didn't have to do something about it. He didn't have to do something about it. No one had to do anything about it. But it could be seen, it could be held, it could be resonated with, but it wasn't the only thing on the radar. Yeah, that was one little battleship in the middle. But there was a bigger view. So not looking for these things to disappear. They, uh, he also calls like the precious floor. Floor, F-L-A-W, floor. The precious floor. Floor not as error, but floor as like a fissure, you know, in a rock, like a crack through a rock. The precious floor. It keeps calling us back. 
that we can't pretend we're great. But as we work more and more, we can't define ourselves as flawed. It's a big canvas. A big canvas. And we do, can develop this taste for signlessness. So the sign, the sign would normally be, oh my God, I'm not welcome. Right? And normally we'll grasp the sign. Because it calls loud. But we start to listen. We come to pr- places of practice. We sincerely have an intention our ears, our inner ears, our outer ears are available for things that don't call so loud. Yes, we handle the things that call loud, absolutely, always. This will be for our benefit. But the things that don't call so loud, and I I think I gave the quote on the first night, but I like it very much. from the Tibetan tradition. Um, beneath the pauper's house, so the poor person, beneath the pauper's house there are many treasures. But the pauper never listens. And the treasures never say, I'm here. They don't do that in the Tibetan tradition. That extra bit, I added that affect. Um, the, the pauper never listens and the treasures never say, I am here. Right? doesn't call so loud. But something calls us. Something keeps calling you back to your cushion. And I'm not making that something outside of you or a cosmic something or a something else other than you. But it's more than just our familiar signs, isn't it? Just desirelessness, dispassion. I I used to have a real problem with that word in the Dharma, dispassion. I used to immediately, so this is one of the teachings around dispassion. I used to think, oh, dispassion. God, that sounds so awful. Like, where's the fun in all of this? Dispassion, I, okay, yeah, maybe life is really terrible and gloomy and awful. All right, (laughs) I'll do dispassion. (laughs) That's not what the Buddha means. In fact, I, I found, heard this quote the other day. It's from Emerson. He said, Some people seem not to, see, not to see that their opinion of the world is also a confession of character. Right? Some people seem not to see that their opinion of the world is also a confession of their character. So probably you've seen lots of opinions of the world here. You wake up in the morning, the world looks... Great. We're not seeing that what's informing that perception is the chitta in that moment. There's a kind of a feeling good here, and then I see the world and everything looks good. I wake up on another day at Guy House, I didn't sleep well, someone flushed the chain at four o'clock, they shouldn't have flushed the toilet at four o'clock, why did they flush the chain if only things were done properly around here, and, 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 and I don't sleep, and I'm angry and righteous, and I wake up, and the chitta is a little bit contracted, but I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen it yet. All I see is the way my eyes start to look and everybody here. I want to warn them all to go home. I want to tell them, this is bad for you. You should go home. Or, or I see through my eyes they look contracted and grumpy, you see. I, can, I knew it was like that here at Guy House. But we haven't seen is that the chitta in that moment is colored by a perception. And then we start to see the world through the lens of whatever happens to be running through at the time. This is really potentially liberating to see this. This can get illuminated here. It's not me, it's not mine. My perception is conditioned by what's going on. It's not me, it's not mine. What a relief. 
But we get so convinced because the perception feels so real. Perception here is the impression, the chitter, the feeling good, feeling bad. Something feels lovely, something feels beautiful, something feels terrible, something fills us with disgust, etc., etc. The brightness, the dullness, running through chitta, running through the chitta. And if we don't see it and handle it, because it feels so real. We will be mistakenly believing that we are seeing reality, whereas actually we're seeing through clouded lenses. There was um, a nice book, I, well, I, I haven't finished it yet, so, that I read this year from a British, uh, British, I guess he's a philosopher. Is he a philosopher? Kind of modern philosopher. Alan de Botin, Botton. Um, uh, it, it's called Religion for Atheists and it's very nice and he um, brings forth all he's, ba- he's an atheist and he basically says don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. there's some really good things that traditions had all along that the secular folk, him, has lost he goes let's check out what's really true about those things and use them skillful means, right so it's quite, it's quite lovely actually but this is what he says So if you've ever looked out of your eyes (laughs) with an unsympathetic assessment of what you're looking at, has that ever happened? Have you ever looked out of your eyes with a view that it's imperfect? Regularly, (laughs) yes, I confess. This is what he says about it. And not that we're trying to say it is perfect. The Buddha's not doing that either. He's doing something more radical. This is from Alan de Botton. He says, The unsympathetic assessments that we make of others are usually the result of nothing more sinister than our habit of looking at them the wrong way. Isn't that lovely? Through lenses clouded by distraction, by exhaustion, and by fear, which blind us to the fact that they are really, despite a thousand differences, just altered versions of ourselves, fellow, fragile, uncertain, flawed beings, likewise craving love and in urgent need of forgiveness. It's a very sympathetic assessment, isn't it, of each other? Yeah. So we handle the thing, the perception that feels so real, And as we handle it, we settle back. As we settle back, we see more of the picture. We see more of the picture. And this in no way is a passive response. Handling the perceptions um, allows us to select the ones we want to follow up on and let go of the ones that are time to let go of. Right? So it's not a passive stance, it's a wise stance. That's different. So the gateway of dispassion, I was beginning, dispassion doesn't mean we have to water down our fire, our love. One of the translations from the Pali, as I understand it, when the Buddha speaks about dispassion, he says that the dispassion that can hold passion, right? The dispassion that can hold passion. Sometimes our passion is burning and troublesome and angry and needs care and attention. As that clarifies, there still may be a passionate being there. You know, when the Buddha speaks about sitting down under the tree, I reckon he was a passionate soul sitting there, sitting there right? Determined, that determination has fire in it. That willingness to sit through all what you know you have to sit through to get a glimpse, right? That's got fire in it. He, it's even translated it from the Pali as zeal. There's a zeal that we need to have the courage to come here to let go enough of our familiar supports to do this work, right? So it's a dispassion that holds this passion, holds passion. Holds our passion. 
And the dispassion itself is cooling. It's wider. We're not fixating on the passion because passion can call loud, can't it? Because it feels like the biggest, loudest, fieriest thing in the pot. Right? The dispassion, the cooling, the breathing out, using that structure, the cooling, that whisper of the possibility of peace, something else is calling us. Something little less, more signless. It's funny, as I said that, I looked down and I was looking for a sign. I was like, right, okay, where do I go now? <laughs> And that's fine. That would be completely appropriate. It's completely fine. We can have wholesome signs, right? Liberation. So the Buddha, Buddha speaks about karma, cause and effect, right? And he says there's unskillful karma, there's unskillful things we do, and they have painful results. And there's skillful karma. There's things we can do that have skillful results. And we can have skillful signs. We can have skillful things to support us, Absolutely. And, so he says, yeah, line up your karma, line up your causes and your effects to ones that will support you. Cultivate metta, cultivate mindfulness of breathing, cultivate beautiful things, do beautiful things. Not so that you become good, you will, (laughs) but that's not the point. Not to be a good person so you can be redeemed from not feeling like you're a bad person, no. Cultivate skillful causes and conditions because it helps you relax. And it's beautiful. It helps you relax. The chitta, the perceptions of the chitta get a little bit more easy to hang out in. When I, when I do, I have one little practice I do. My inner critic is popping up at the side here going, you can't tell them that. You can't blow your own trumpet. Um, there's a small practice. It's really a small practice I do. Um, no trumpets. Uh, and I, I learned it from a friend. And uh, uh, he, he goes to Wales. No, he goes to Cornwall several times a year. And there's a toll gate. So he took it on to pay for the person. Is there still a toll gate on the Tamar? Yeah. Um, uh, pays for the person himself and the person behind him just as a because you don't have to and it does something to the heart so I thought that's great I go to Wales three times a year and this is my trumpet part it's six pounds twenty or something Um, and I pay for the person behind me even if they've got a posher car than me and um, I it's like it's just a it's just (laughs) because it's not the point right that's not the point anymore um <laughs> right. So I, yeah, I do this, whatever the causes the conditions, because it actually makes me feel good. Not the self-image, not the might do that, not the aren't I really really good? I can tell everyone at Guy House when I go there and teach a retreat. But actually, there's something very, um, it's actually quite tender when I when I do that each time, because each time there's in the thought in my mind, you don't really have to do it this time, you know. You've done it enough. But I've taken it on, so I do it. And sometimes there's different effects, different things, but it lets the heart-mind be a little soft, a bit generous, a bit uh, remembering my brother or sister or whoever's behind me. Human brother, sister, person. Sometimes they smile. Sometimes they look intimidated. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see normally, the truth is. Often the person at the toll gate is really um, delighted, right? There's something in the... Per- very often they're kind of like, right? Something, so it's, it's good for me. I do it because it's good for me, actually. And if it's good for anyone else, I'm very happy. Um, so this... I can't remember the point now. I've having battled with my superego. Um <laughs> It gets you off track, doesn't it, when you start believing everything that comes in your mind? Where do you think that was going? (laughs) 
oh, that's right, karma. Yeah, so these are skillful, skillful things, like cultivating wholesome things. Let's me relax a bit more. It's a bit of a nicer place to hang out. Not because I'm telling myself, but because those things are uh, reflecting the fact that I am in this world with everybody else, rather than, oops, I'm just here by myself, which isn't the truth. When I do things that reflect that, it's in accord with the nature of things. <sighs> nature likes that. <laughs> nature likes that. So I relax. And he talks about the end of karma, beyond cause and effect. We cultivate skillful causes and effects to relax, to have less regret, to be able to heal the places of regret. Let them come forth. They will come forth in a chitta that is favorable, in a heart mind that is a little more favorable. They can come forth. They do not have to continue to overwhelm us. They can be um, bathed in the stream, in the river, in the ocean. That's the healing. And then beyond cause and effect, release, cessation. Deliverance from being bound to the roller coaster. Even the roller coaster. It's not, it doesn't feel like a roller coaster when it's more easy causes and conditions, but there can still be a sense, can't there, of me I'm doing really well and then boom, it's changing. Where did that go? I felt really good yesterday. Why don't I feel good today? Deliverance from all of that. And that's what the teaching points to. The Buddha is interested in showing us. Um, liberation and he said I teach one thing only suffering and the end of suffering that part is timeless the causes and conditions are cultivated in time they're skillful, they're relative they're wholesome, they're beneficial they those two processes work together. And the timeless liberation is here and now. It's not when I've sorted it all out. It invites investigation for each one to be realized for their self. Listening to what's wider, deeper than the radar while including the normal bits of the puzzle, including them, embracing them, disidentifying from them, they can unfold, show us new surprises, so we don't become liberated in spite of ourselves. We become liberated w through that structure. Let's see if I can put it a different way. Don't wait to try to dismantle something, to try and make it a better structure. The liberation is not conditioned. That's what the Buddha points to. We are completely fine as we are with whatever structure we have. If we're allowed to rest with that right now, there's nothing wrong. The body can soften a little bit. The thoughts can quieten a little bit. And the chitta can start to rest a little bit. And what can be illuminated are these more signless gates.
So I want to finish with a small poem by a Zen nun that has pointed me in my practice very often to that which doesn't call the loudest. So I offer this to you and then we'll, I'll ring the bell. She said, and it's one of those Zen ones, you can't wrap your mind around it, which is what's so great about the, some of that work. She said, for 66 years, these eyes have beheld the changing scenes of autumn. Ask me no more about moonlight. I have already said enough. Just listen to the, so- to the sound of the pine and the cedar in a forest where no wind blows. Just listen to the sound of the pine and the cedar in a forest where no wind blows. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.